Show Me the Climate Money, how climate change affects your investments and how your investments can affect climate change. To do this, I'm partnering with three very interesting organisations, Mindful Money, Climate Venture Capital Fund, and our very own Darcy Ngaro, who is the host of, uh, if you like, my sister show, uh, which is called New Zealand Everyday Investor. You will learn how climate change punishes some sectors, creates opportunities in others, and how you as a personal investor can use your money as a weapon for good. So please join us. We've got Darcy from NZ Everyday Investor, Shannon Barnes from uh, Mindful Money, and Ryan McMahon from the Climate Venture Capital Fund. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this uh, special webinar and podcast uh, as part of the Climate Festival, the Auckland Climate Festival is a month-long month celebration of climate events across Auckland City, uh, and so we're very privileged to be part of that network. Um, the theme of this year's festival is Nahua or Why, which is a, uh, a call for us to consider how uh, our actions involve us in the natural world and likewise how the natural world involves us. So very appropriate today, we're talking about climate and finance. And uh, this webinar is brought to you by three, in fact, four organisations, uh, the um, New Zealand Everyday, NZ Everyday Investor, uh, Darcy here on my right, uh, Shannon, who is from Mindful Money, and uh, Rowan, or as we like to call him, Rohan McMahon uh, from the Climate Venture Capital Fund. And I'm your host, Vincent Herringer. I run a podcast called This Climate Business. So um, the purpose of this discussion really is to talk about what's the role that climate is having on finance and investment, but also what role can our finance and personal choices around finance have an impact on climate. And um, we thought we would uh, gather uh, three very knowledgeable people together because it's a complex subject, but thankfully we have three experts to guide us through. And uh, so without further ado, thanks for joining us. But uh, Rowan, give us a quick summary of who you are and what's your connection into climate finance? Thanks very much, Vincent. Namihi nui kia koutou. Great to be here. Um, so I'm a partner in the Climate Venture Capital Fund, which is New Zealand's only climate tech investment fund. Um, our job is to invest in early stage technologies and companies that can decarbonise the planet. So every uh, uh, company that we invest in is doing something transformative to reduce emissions in a very provable and measurable way. Um, that's our contribution to helping to address the climate crisis. And we also believe that um, because the, we see the transition to a cleaner economy as being inevitable, um, that we believe that that will create great commercial returns over time for our investors. So reducing emissions and making money at the same time. That's, That's right. a dream scenario, isn't it? Um, Shannon, who are you? What do you do? Oh, um, yeah, kia ora tato. Ko Shannon toko ingoa. So I come from the environmental sector. So I've worked in environmental and ecological consulting and then in regulatory compliance. And through those roles, I kind of witnessed firsthand some really great examples of um, really good environmental restoration and kind of climate adaptation on the ground, but then also some really bad examples of environmental pollution and polluters getting away with things that didn't necessarily <laughs> do good things with the climate. And so I kind of... Um, questioning like what are the underlying mechanisms that um, you know support the things doing good and de-incentivize the bad guys from causing harm and underlying that all is 
pretty much money. Like money is a lot of power to influence those things. So kind of overnight I um, went and looked into this climate and finance and investing stuff and thought kind of how complex can it be? Turns out <laughs> it's pretty complex um, and I'm still learning today. And so um, I now work for Mindful Money. So we are a charity that brings in um, transparency to what's in KiwiSaver and managed funds in New Zealand in terms of um, the harm and the good. And so we have a platform. It's free online for anyone to go and look at. You can look, um, type in any KiwiSaver fund um, you want and it'll bring up what it's invested in in terms of um, issues of concern or harm. And then you can uh, choose to switch to a more ethical fund that aligns with your values. Mm. Yeah. And not just KiwiSaver, right? You're also applying that to managed yeah. funds. Yeah, managed funds as well. Yeah. Mm. My daughter used it actually to choose her, oh, cool. her first KiwiSaver yeah. fund. She used Mindful Money to, to go through and exclude what she was, you know, wanting to exclude and, yeah. and also, um, I guess, highlight the things she wanted to invest in. So, yeah, great yeah. tool. Thank great. you. Use, user-friendly tool, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Darcy. Um, Yes, hello, Vincent. How are you? Um, well, <laughs> fantastic. It's a gorgeous it's day here in Auckland. Um, uh, tell us about your um, about uh, NZ Everyday Investor and also your connection into, into climate. Sure. So, uh, hello. I am Darcy Angaro. I'm a financial advisor, so I work primarily with everyday people, trying to make everyday money moves, moving house, dealing with property and mortgages. But then I have an interest in helping self-directed DIY investors make better money moves. And I'm quite interested in the, the space in between, like the tension between extremes. And um, in terms of like the intersection between technology that's changing, changing geopolitics, and this climate opportunity, I would call it, I've kind of starting to see now that there's a lot of dynamism for everyday investors going forward. So the podcast is really about me exercising those thoughts and engaging with people from all sorts of diverse headspaces and industries to try to find a common thread or like a trail of breadcrumbs that those that are still trying to develop wealth can follow. Hmm. And that keeps me very busy. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> and a great excuse to talk to people. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so climate change is many things, but it's basically a disruption to the natural world. And disruptions are an opportunity for um, making money and losing money. Um, we've seen it before, uh, whether it's in tech or whether it's geopolitics. Um, but, you know, it has its own unique elements to it. Rowan, do you want to, could, could I ask you to describe how is climate change disrupting business as usual for us? Absolutely. I'll give it a go. Um, thanks. In a short answer, right? <laughs> um, we're in a fossil fuel economy. The global economy is driven by fossil fuels. Um, this glass of, uh, of water, um, the water was brought to us using fossil fuels. The glass was made with fossil fuels. Um, everything around us is produced with energy and most of the world's energy uh, comes from fossil fuels. Um, that started with the Industrial Revolution, really. Uh, we, we've uh, invented um, mass customization, mass consumerization of products. Um, we've invented things that have brought us amazing utility as consumers. We can have washing machines and iPhones and uh, world travel and so on. But all of those things come with greenhouse gas emissions, which was something that we never thought to price. And when uh, those of us who went to business school or economics school were taught that pollution was an externality that had no cost. But it does have a cost. Um, the cost is up there 
And we're now starting to recognise that cost and it's falling in different ways in different places, but it is falling in a profound way, which is more and more visible every day. Um, so the disruption is the process of us realising that cost and recognising how it's going to land mm. and moving to something different and better. Um, so the way in which we see it is that um, because responding to climate change is an, is an existential thing that the species has got to get on with and is getting on with, um, that requires us to unpick all of those fossil fuel economy uh, linkages that we've built up since the Industrial Revolution started. So it means we have to decarbonise you know, coal-fired power stations, which is kind of obvious, but it also means I've got to decarbonise this glass of water, which is not so obvious. You've actually got to think about the entire economy. Um, and so what we uh, believe is that there are profound opportunities um, to be uh, realised by people who do the homework um, to mm -hmm. to decarbonise the easier things, and which might be the more expensive things, but also to, to, de to decarbonise the harder things, the things where we haven't found um, easy solutions yet. Um, and so I'm not one of those people who believes that technology is a magic solution to everything, but it definitely provides solutions to a lot of things. Um, and we invest in uh, trying to help some of those uh, businesses get to scale. I mean, there's another disruption. The, the disruption that you've just talked about is, is swapping out technology, um, shifting to a different kind of economy. Shannon, we've seen another disruption with these storms all around the world. Every mm -hmm. Every week there seems to be another storm and we experience some wicked storms here in New Zealand, what, in January? Mm. Yeah, and it, and it creates disruptions to not only like there and now when the storm happened and everyone was kind of displaced, but the ongoing thing. So you look at, um, you know, all the industries in the east coast of the North Island, so the horticulture and farming, um, that drew up prices in, in our supermarkets based on like the food supply. And so it's like trickle down stuff that goes throughout the country, throughout the world. It's not just where it's happening there and then. Yeah. 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 And a little bit like COVID in the way that, you know, logistics were, mm. I mean, COVID's not necessarily a climate related um, disruption, but uh, the, the blocking of roads, the breaking of bridges, suddenly access around the motto is is limited, right? And that, that's another example of the kind of disruptive change that we are going to be expecting. Yeah, for sure. And um, we're only kind of now in the mainstream starting to realise that climate change is linked to biodiversity loss. It's linked to human rights. So all these other issues are all interlinked. And so we can't just address climate change itself in isolation. We need to be mm -hmm. thinking about the wider picture. So, you know, there's negatives and like, very few positives that come out of it. But one of the positives is that we have to like rethink our thinking into more uh, bigger picture, holistic things to solve these really complex challenges. Right. Okay. Mm. We've been here before though, Darcy. I mean, we've experienced disruptions. There, there have been wars. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been COVID pandemic. Uh, yeah. I'm just thinking of the tech wreck, you know, there was yeah. a tech boom and the tech. So disruption is not unusual for investors. When you've mm. witnessed and experience these kind of big systemic changes, What's the what happens for investors? What should they be thinking about? What should happen or what investors should be thinking about is obviously long-term rather than the short-term noise because there's always going to be short-term noise and events that shake people to their core. But number one, I would say you, you have to maintain a long-term focus and understand some of these macro trends, which are often scary and disturbing to consider, right. like what we're talking about today. Yeah. Um, so thinking long-term, ideally with an, a base case of optimism and an overlay of pessimism <laughs> rather than the other way around. 
and diversification, right? So I, I think investing in green investments, to use a, a pretty basic term, is a really great portfolio diversifier because you're benefiting if there is, um, I guess, degradation in the climate, which is beyond what the market is priced into these investments. Mm -hmm. And so even just as a hedging strategy, that kind of makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, there's also maybe even thinking about more extreme hedging tools. So in other words, things that go up in value much more significantly during times of crisis slash opportunity. And again, I, I would probably think of the startup ecosystem as a really good example of that and other mains, not mainstream, but yeah, it was sort of mainstream alternative assets, specifically Bitcoin and kind of really digging in deep around some of the myths around its damage to the environment and actually seeing what kind of opportunities exist there, which mm -hmm. I think there are some tremendous opportunities. So I think, yeah, keeping an open mind, looking at some scary stuff, diversification and hedging, those would be the things I would point at. Uh, you think about something like EVs as a, uh, you know, the Tesla stock just goes up and up and up and it's driven off the back of this decarbonisation trend, right? So um, would that imply, you know, looking at with your kind of hedging strategy, would that imply that you, you go kind of long on Tesla, for instance, that um, this is not advice, by the way. Do we have to say that? <laughs> yeah, I think we probably should. Yeah. Right, okay. Let's say you, so you go you go long on something like Tesla, and you go short on something like I think a, even, yeah, I think a, even, a GM. Or I, well, I think even before you get into that, you probably want to consider what the what the reason is why you're investing. Are you investing for a return? Are you investing exclusively to to do good? Ideally, you're going to do both, right? And, and that's kind of like what you're trying to achieve is the mm -hmm. balance between both those. Mm -hmm. There's going to be probably more opportunity for the brown industries turning green um, in some instances and, and the other way around. It just depends on what level of degradation to the climate actually occurs over time versus what we think or what the market thinks. And if you try and outsmart the market, you're going to get your face ripped off. So <laughs> you don't want to short <laughs> I thought Tesla. that's the whole point of being an investor is you're going to be smarter than the, the other guy. Well, yeah, you are. But I think it, it, it defaults to design rather than function you know like you, you can't just trust your gut feel in these situations or even trust the marketing spiel you have to be quite strategic and that's where i think thinking about how your portfolio is constructed and allocating things towards mainstream investments with slight tilts mm -hmm. rather than going all in on these speculative bets is really the way to do it right okay so that was kind of um you're having a portfolio approach right yeah absolutely yeah okay well that's Always good advice, isn't it? Have a have a, a manage a portfolio. Um, the other way to the other lens that you could look at uh, this is start to use ethical criteria for making investment decisions, right? And I know at Mindful Money, and and I suspect Rowan too, you you would argue that having an ethical lens would actually help you identify uh, longer term successful bets. Do you want to just expand on that? I mean, do you agree with that idea? I mean, it's one method to do it. It's not the be all and end all, but ethical screening, in essence, is putting a, um, a ethical or sustainability criteria and screening out the harmful things that you don't want and then keeping in the things you don't mind. And, and so it's a really great tool to um, reduce your exposure to the risks of those harmful things you want to keep out um, while also making your portfolio align with your values. And so that's kind of the essence of Mindful Money as we have that website and you can go on 
and we have a, a fund checker. And so in the fund checker, uh, the fund finder, sorry, you can go on and uh, screen out the things you don't want and then keep the things you don't mind in. So you might be someone that really cares about climate change. So you don't want fossil fuels in your investments, but you don't mind um, alcohol or um, other things like that. So you keep those in and then it'll spit out um, a few different options of funds that you could potentially um, align with your values or switch to if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really great tool for like the everyday um, Joe Bloggs personal finance investor that just has a KiwiSaver mm-hmm. because um, you know for an average person to be putting their money away in KiwiSaver every single week, there's no way they're going to know where that money's actually going to unless you go to your fund provider and say, can you provide me with the full list of companies? Um, and then even then you've got the list of companies, but how do you know if those companies are doing harm or doing good? So it's um, really my for Money is just a, a platform for transparency. So we take that hard work out for you. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's one it's one tool to use, but it's not uh, the, the be all and end all. But mm-hmm. I suspect that your, I, I, I think the argument that Māi would make, and I reckon Rowan too would make that, um, not only is this a tool for aligning with your values, but actually a values-based decision will deliver a better financial result. Would you go that far, Rowan? Absolutely. Over time, um, we have, a, obviously being a climate fund, we only invest in emissions reduction. So if you can't satisfy us on that, then the rest of it is kind of irrelevant. But we also have a pretty strong set of ESG policy settings around around exclusions of things that we think have negative consequences for Human rights and and labour rights and um, and so on and so on, um, alcohol and tobacco and the like. Um, I think that uh, we we certainly see that those things over time will give us a portfolio of companies that we've invested in that aligns with our values personally. Mm. Probably aligns with the values of the people who've invested in us, but you'd have to ask them. Um, but over time, actually, will produce really great returns as well because um, intrinsically, what the products and services that these companies are building are cleaner, greener. Um, you know, socially socially acceptable products. Um, therefore, they'll find markets. I mean, it's it's funny how you know I've spent a lot of my background working in the um, the technology sector, and we, we used to talk about faster, cheaper, better. But to me now, it's faster, cheaper, better, and lower emissions. So if if you're making a product or a service that is inherently faster, cheaper, better, lower emissions than the competitors, it will tend to sell. Um, the lower emissions part is in the title of our fund, yeah. but those other attributes are, are important as well. Um, and we think that there are a lot of investors who are very motivated around that. I'm certainly motivated around that personally. Mm. It just see no reason to be investing in things that I'm not comfortable investing in. That's, that seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? I, I guess that's obvious at an individual level. Darcy, do you buy the argument that, say, for instance, not just looking generally at, at ethical investing, but specifically climate, is... Is a lower emissions criteria going to be an important uh, kind of yardstick to include in your, mm. you know, for financial returns? Is that going to be part of the mix? It depends on what perspective we're coming from. Like if we're coming from the perspective of the everyday investor, when push comes to shove, if there's a risk that you're not going to get the return that you could get elsewhere, you're probably still not going to do it. Mm. That's kind of where we're at right now. So I think we'd all like to think of ourselves as ethical investors uh-huh. and that we don't want to be doing all these things. But in reality, we probably want a rate of return. And so I, d- I don't know if it's as... I, again, I, I kind of always think of the perspective of the everyday investor looking at the climate opportunity is, is not yet there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's so thick 
with greenwashing probably coming down from the large fund managers that it's really hard for them to separate the wheat from the chaff and to actually understand what's real uh-huh. and what's just noise. And so that probably doesn't answer your question. No, but, it's, it, a, but, but it's such an interesting uh, kind of spoiler, isn't it? That e- even if you think that there's a logical connection between lower emissions and a more sustainable, successful business, yeah. h- how then do you discern yeah. which is the truth yeah. From the greenwash, or or even does it even matter? Because like I've I've been reading some reports over just last weekend around just the the, the amount of money that's going to be coming into this space over the next few decades is phenomenal. So does it really matter if it's real or fake or greenwashed <laughs> or not? It probably doesn't, right? From a purely kind of market return yeah. point of view, totally, it, it, it probably matters from a planetary point of view. But is it? Mm, I suppose yeah. that's kind of that's what. The tool is for right. Yeah, and like the like the tool comes down to how legitimate that screen is. So funds can easily put a, a exclusion criteria on, say, I want to exclude fossil fuels, but then it gets quite complex because they might hold a fund that holds another fund that holds another fund, and there might be a fossil fuel company mm-hmm. way down the track. Mm-hmm. And um, at Mindful Money, yeah, we we account for all of that, so we look yeah. into like every single kind of down the chain investment that funds have. So it does get picked up. For us, and um, we have like a, quite a clear methodology we follow as well to what um, constitutes our criteria. So, yeah, it comes down to the yeah legitimacy of the screen as well. Mm. Mm. Rowan, how do you discern the wheat from the chaff when when it comes to investment decisions? Like, how do you know you're not getting greenwashed? Well, as I say, the provability of the climate reduction is the first question that we're asking as investors, and if we can't answer that question successfully with the company, then the rest of our questions are irrelevant. So due diligence is really important as a venture capital investor. You're making long-term investments in relatively early stage companies that are doing some good things. Uh, They have obviously a level of uncertainty around how you hope to develop, that they hope to develop and how you hope to to help them. Um, But it will take some time for, you know, the tree to bear fruit. Um, that means you really have to be a little bit relationship-based and do great due diligence. So we look up and down the supply chain. We ask ourselves the question, what, where, are this, where is this company's products uh, made? How are they made? What are the components? Who are the suppliers? Who are the customers going to be? And um, what are the customers doing with the product? Is there anything dodgy that they're doing with the product? Um, and importantly, we have a, an external climate impact committee, um, which we ask to, uh, to give us a level of comfort that that climate effect is measurable and, and provable. Um, but we also said to them, if there's something in this that you're uncomfortable with on other ESG criteria, feel free to veto it. Um, so they have veto power over, over our investment decisions, hmm. um, which gives, you know, I, I think gives, gives our investors a level of, um, you know, higher level of confidence. Yeah. I'm assuming that if, if you're <coughs> an a equity trader, you're going to be looking at analysts' reports, right? You're going to be reading the stuff that's coming from um, analysts and, and share brokers who will be asking the questions about liability. So, um, you know, no one wants to invest in a stranded asset, right? So some of these liability uh, liabilities would be identified, wouldn't they, in, in analyst reports, on, particularly on equities? I'd certainly imagine so, um, but I mean, part of our hypothesis is that climate risk is is underpriced and under um, under you know not fully the measured. Climate risk is. The climate risk is, yeah, um, and therefore uh, a lot of portfolios, I believe, have got downside that they haven't fully recognised. Hmm. Can um, you give us a for instance, as the Americans say? 
Um, it's hard to give you a for instance without being too specific about it, but I mean, I think if you're holding a portfolio of assets that um, are exposed to the global economy and you look at what's happening to the global economy and what those causes are, you know, I just saw a video this morning from the United Nations looking at flooding events, which were in places like uh, Mexico, Brazil, Guatemala, but also Spain and Greece, um, also in Asia and horrendous flooding, of course, in Libya just the other day. So that's just one set of climate impacts that are hitting the economy. If you're in, um, you know, have got an equities-based portfolio that is exposed to the global economy, the global economy is going to uh, suffer from some um, some real stresses because of climate response right. now, but um, you know, projected to get worse in future. So I see that as downside, and I don't, I don't believe that um, a broad portfolio that hasn't thought carefully about that would have that fully factored in. Darcy, mm-hmm. you might not agree. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I'm picking up what you're laying down, and I'm just trying to understand the implication though around fees, even because to get that level of detail in the research to actually go through the supply chain and to understand what the impact is on everything, how how does that translate into the net returns, right? Surely that comes with lower returns because there's more cost just to adequately research what the what the footprint looks like. Would that be yeah, true? I, I don't think so. I mean, we've, we've placed five investments so far, for example. So that's five pieces of DD due diligence that we've completed successfully. And there's been some other ones where we decided not to invest and somewhere we've started but not finished. Um, so it is a pretty bespoke, bespoke process. We're not doing it, um, you, know, you know, for months on end for a huge number of companies. Um, and we're, of course, relatively small as well. But I think you'd find that um, for private asset classes, if you're in private equity or venture capital, they're making relative, a relatively low number of investment decisions. So yeah. a private equity fund might have you know, three or five investments. A VC fund might have 10 or 20. Mm. Um, and so you're being quite specific about that. But even then, there is a point in your due diligence where you have to say, that's enough. I've, I've gone far enough now. I think I know enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's this uh, term going around uh, TCFD, which is the uh, financial disclosures around climate risk. Uh, I really don't understand it. Can you explain it, Shannon? And, and would that be helpful for investors to know what the, the downside is going to be for a company or for a stock? Yeah, so it's a mandatory disclosure that companies have to disclose their um, risks and impacts in terms of the climate. And there's also the task force for nature-related financial disclosures that's now coming out as okay. well. So, so not just climate, but nature as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What so, does the acronym mean? TCFD. Uh, task force on climate-related financial disclosures. Excellent. Another but it's easier to say. And does that, will that help? create greater transparency about the downside risks for uh, investments? Yeah, it, it helps the investor because they can see what the risks are in terms of that company, but that also helps the company themselves to figure out what their risks are and how they need to change their business model to to um, account for the risks to also their business, but then also their impact on the environment and climate as well. Um, and yeah, I think like in the future, this is just a baseline now, but in the future, there'll be a lot more mandatory disclosures like that. Like the EU have just introduced one for deforestation. So um, they aren't importing any products that have been linked to deforestation in their supply chain. So right down to the like sourcing level. Mm-hmm. Um, and there'll be things like that coming up in the next few years that I think will really um, cause companies to have a look at what their impacts are um, throughout their supply chain. Yeah, interesting. So if, yeah. I, if I'm an investor in a, let's say I want to be in the food scene and I'm an investor in Nestle and um, Danone or 
uh, I don't even know if Danone is a traded stock, but let's just say, <laughs> mm. I should expect to see transparency around their exposure on deforestation, uh, labour abuses, emissions. Is that the kind of things that are going to come out with this kind of reporting? Yeah, and it'll come out in a quite a technical report they'll put out, but they should put out a, a summary report that's kind of lay summary as well. But um, we we use that stuff as well to, at Mindful Money to kind of look into the impacts of a company uh-huh. if they're involved in um, yeah, deforestation and things like that. So yeah. Mindful Money is a good platform to... Are you feeling yeah, comforted, Darcy? Are you starting to get the information <laughs> that you want? I'm starting to get it. Yeah, yeah, I'm starting <laughs> to get it. Well, what you're kind of saying is that indirectly, like at a really high level, we're talking about more information helps direct the flow of new capital, which is coming into this space, which will lower the cost of some businesses and increase the cost of other businesses that are, let's say, more brown. So mm. it creates an incentive to greenify. Um I'm probably not using the right words, am I? But <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying, right? You're um, on the right track. So it, it's an interesting way to, to frame it. Like the more information that you can unlock by going through the supply chains and just fr- trying to understand the impact all the way through. And then that will increase, like all this disclosure increasingly um, helps the market be aware of what is a green investment and what is a brown investment, what, what needs improvement, what doesn't. And as a business owner, that's obviously really important as and, well. And where the risk is, right? Yeah. There, there is, it's not related to the TCFD, but um, the government has required uh, industries and large companies to report on their, to create scenarios about future climate risks. There's a brilliant report. One of the first ones off the block is by the, about the tourism sector. And they've had to do these scenarios on a 1.5 degree warming world, a two degree and a three or a four, I think. Mm. Um, and those scenarios are really informative about, you know, what kind of businesses are going to go out of business. Snow, for instance, is going to be retreating. And so as an investor, you'd go, hmm, should I really be investing in a rural Pehu Alpine lifts business? I'm not sure. Mm. Um, and those scenario documents, they're um, terrifying and informative reading. And and I think as an investor, you know, I'm really, I, yeah. I, I feel like I'm getting some insights into, you know, yeah. where the opportunities and certainly where the downside yeah. is. Yeah. Even even just with property, like uh, there was one, one thing that I read which talked about um, properties that are more susceptible to rising sea levels on average will be discounted by 7% over a 50-year period relative to the other properties that are equidistant to the water but not susceptible to sea level rise. Right. And I don't know how much the market is aware of that, but as it relates to coastal properties even, like that's a factor, right? Because that will determine what what value people place on this type of real estate going forward. So I think that's right. I'm, Rowan, you probably have noticed that you, in the real estate section in newspapers, there are still coastal properties that are going for, you know, epic amounts down in Pawanui and, mm. um, and on the Napier coastline. And you think, uh, are but you not reading anything? One of my favourite quotes of all time is from William Gibson, the uh, sci-fi author. He said, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yeah. Um, and so some people are paying those huge amounts of money. But there's a gentleman in the Coromandel uh, on the other side, on the Thames Coast side, um, who's listed his property, which is red sticket at the moment, for a dollar. Uh, and he said, well, well, we'll see how we go. Hopefully it'll be more than a dollar, but the house has to be written off. You know, I saw the photo. It's, you know, it's got a steep hillside behind it, very thin little sliver of land, and then you've got State Highway 25, and then you've got the Firth of Thames. Um, it's an acutely climate-exposed area, um, and the valuation of those properties 
is is not going to be great going forward. Um, but managed retreats are is a is a really real thing. I mean, we're relatively coastal folk here in New Zealand, um, and and a huge proportion of us live near a waterway. It's not just about being on the coast; it's being near any kind of waterway. Yeah. Uh, so those consequences are going to be hefty. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. And we've talked a lot about downside. Um, and there's plenty of downside with climate change. But let's talk about some upside. Rowan, um, you invest in tech. Uh, what's exciting you at the moment? Heaps of things are exciting me at the moment, Vincent. Um, but basically, uh, d- decarbonisation as a topic um, gives you licence to look at essentially any industry and any product category, which is kind of cool. Um, one thing I'm really excited about that we have invested in is long duration energy storage. So it's kind of obvious that we're turning off fossil fuel energy sources like gas and oil and coal, and we're, we're turning on more and more solar and wind power and cleaner energy sources, geothermal, biomass, and so on and so on. Um, but those uh, energy sources tend, the cleaner ones, tend to be intermittent. Sometimes they're on, sometimes they're off, and you can't necessarily control when they are and when they're not. So energy storage has a huge potential because it's going to stand between those clean energy sources which are on sometimes and off other times and when demand is actually there for clean electricity. The wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine. And That's right. And when they do, you want to capture it. Yeah, and even in New Zealand where we're blessed with uh, great hydro, so hydro is a form of energy storage because you can send it downstream when you want it. Um, but even in New Zealand, um, hydro is, is, is the largest form of energy, uh, but it's not always available. We do have droughts um, and hydro um, in a dry season. And what do you know, there's going to be more of those with, um, with climate change. Um, hydro shrinks as a proportion of the energy mix. So you need more forms of energy storage. Um, so there are lots of those out there and we've chosen to invest in one, which is in the long duration energy storage sort of side of things. So a lot of um, lithium ion battery type uh, solutions that you see being deployed in your home or in in the grid somewhere are relatively short duration. So they'll help you to keep the power on for a couple of hours, maybe sort of two, four, maybe even eight hours, but not for a day and certainly not for a week. Hmm. Um, And you are going to need those forms of long-term energy storage. Um, And we think technology's got some great options there. You know, the government's talked about investing in Lake Onslow down in the South Island. Um, But if that comes on stream, it won't be until the very late 2030s at the earliest. And if you're in New Zealand, most of us are in the upper North Island. Lake Onslow is at the far south. So you've got a long uh, new transmission line that's going to be needed to bridge the gap between the two. Mm. So if you were a a personal investor, so we're not all venture capitalists around the table here, I'm sorry, um, Ron, but if you were, I don't know, a personal investor, a KiwiSaver investor, how would you take something like storage and apply it to your own thinking and you know if you if you were into it and you thought hey well that that actually Mm. makes sense that's a great opportunity how would you begin to make some investment research or even decisions about that like i think it all starts at home personally like moving to evs as as a start going solar as much as you can much as you can afford to Um, i'm fascinated about what you were saying there though before roan just because of the the kind of learning that I've done around how you could basically set up Bitcoin generate like Bitcoin mining facilities that are solar powered as a means to an end so that you over engineer solar generation, mm. which then can help fund the build out of the new infrastructure required to harvest it from one area and transmit that energy somewhere else. Mm. And I just wonder if even at a household layer as a proxy for a battery, you have a financial storage device, which is Bitcoin generation at a micro level, 
by over-generating solar on roofs. I know that's a little bit out there in terms of an idea, but mm. it's just one of the many. No idea is a bad idea, but yeah, <laughs> maybe that one. But maybe that yeah. was. <laughs> <laughs> so you, what you're saying is is using the revenue that you might generate from yeah. your Bitcoin, um, uh, what's it called, mining, mining yeah. um, to fund solar yeah, and, right. and overspec the solar, so it's actually. Yeah. You know, kind because of, that then that helps alleviate some of the storage issues, right? Because then it's obviously going to be volatile. But mm, if mm-hmm. you're way overproducing during the day, then that helps. But you have to have a, a way to actually utilize that surplus energy. And what better way than to monetize it in mm, the digital space, mm. I think, anyway. You, I suppose you find with personal investors that they, they're not professional investors, right? So there's, there's a real kind of blurring of lifestyle and, uh, yeah. and investing. So people tend to invest in the things that they, they like. Yeah, well, not everyone's a business person, right? And I think to yeah. be a good um, investor in a sense, you almost have to be a good business person because it's kind of the same thing. Right. And so if you're not into that, then you probably rely more on the larger funds to do all the heavy lifting for you. And that's yeah. where there's a lot of trust and, and things like mindful money and other platforms like that. Yeah. But at a micro level, I think that you have to be into business to really get into that. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, another f- topic that we haven't really talked about is, is the reverse of using your personal investments to actually reward and punish companies and organizations that you think are, are contributing or, uh, you know, or solving climate change. Can you tell us about rather than being a beneficiary of, of um, finance, being using it as a weapon or a or a tool for change. Did that, I imagine that some of your mindful money customers are doing that, right? Yeah, like I'm a big proponent of like instead of saying money makes the world go round, we should probably change it to money as an enabler of good things and bad things in the world. Even though it's quite long, we maybe we shouldn't do that. But yeah. um, there's an acronym for that. Yeah, yeah, probably <laughs> TCFD. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it can as much as capitalism has kind of got us into these problems in terms of um, climate change and like all the exploitation that goes on. There's also a great opportunity to um, use our our power with our wallet in terms of the world we want to see. Mm. And so I think, um, you know, there's a lot of um, scepticism around, like you're saying, like green uh, green and brown um, investment. And a lot of people say that, well, if you're taking the money away from the brown guys, how are they going to transition to become the good guys eventually? And yes, that's true to an extent, but we know that with, um, I'm going to name and shame some fossil fuel giants, but like BP and Shell, um, they are making record profits at the moment. And if you dig down into it, like they are, putting most of their profits into exploration of new oil and gas and the amount they're putting into um, low carbon technology or renewable energy is tiny, tiny, tiny compared to that. And so Mm. they have every opportunity to do it right now, but they're not doing it. And so I think to a certain extent, um, yes, we need to support the transition, but when the big players aren't playing their part, then... um, yeah. Then you need to use your, yeah, you, use you your need power, to use your power <laughs> yeah. as a consumer and as someone with a moral voice. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, investment in terms of what you can do with it is is a spectrum. So at the like the red flag end, you've got the traditional stuff where you only look at the financial return. Like, is it going to make me a financial return tomorrow? Yep, good. Like that's outdated. That's out the window. The next thing you can do is screen out harm. Why is that outdated? Um, I think like you're going back to saying the, the long term um, thinking of investment. Like for me, 
in 2050, when it's meant to be a completely decarbonized world, I'll still be 15 years off retirement. Like, that's crazy to think about. Like, why would I want fossil fuels in my KiwiSaver? Because they're not going to be around and not going to be making a return for that amount uh-huh. of time. Yeah. And so just taking a longer term thinking of like what industries are going to be hit hard with climate change and which ones are going to be around, which ones are not going to be subject to environmental fines, um, you know, government regulations, have good governance structures in place, not causing harm to communities. Like uh-huh. those are the kind of things that so you want. even though Shell and BP are raking it in now, mm. your argument is that long term they're set up for failure. Exactly, because like if you think about them investing now into new exploration and production, they're going to face a huge cliff to fall off in the future when we are decarbonised because uh-huh. they haven't put any money into or enough money into renewable sources and so they're going to have stranded assets and um, you know they're going to be declining. And if you look at the fossil fuel industry over the last 10 years, um, it's actually, even though we've got like a lot of chatter at the moment about them going up in profits, if you look at the last 10 years, they've actually gone down and are declining um, in terms of the benchmark, like compared to the S&P 500 benchmark, fossil fuels have not historically okay. done very uh, well. Right. Yeah, Some people might, yeah, look at the data, <laughs> um, it says that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think just taking a longer term view um, and going back to that spectrum, like the the next kind of equal thing you could do in terms of exclusions is um, engaging with companies. So, you know, turning up to Shell or um, BP's AGM and saying, transition to fossil fuels, good luck with that, but you can try it, you can engage with your KiwiSaver provider and say, hey, I've um, used the Mindful Money tool when I've seen that I've got fossil fuel investments in my KiwiSaver, I don't want them there, would you consider divesting from them? And then the next best thing you could do is look at um, switching into more different companies, so companies that have greater environmental, social and governance um, things in place. Mm -hmm. And then the golden end of the spectrum is what we call impact investing, and that's like investing in things that make a positive impact. So, you know, climate technology that's equitable or social housing or renewable energy um, systems for communities, things yeah. like that. So, yeah. Um, it's and that's where you might expect a lower return because you're aligning it with a social good or an environmental good. Is that that's but, but the, the cool thing with what you're saying, though, is that there's like a, this this relationship between the returns and the underlying value of the asset. Mm. And I think that's the, that's the key with what you're saying, like maybe investing in Exxon or BP right now, you might get good cash flow out of it. They're earning really well, but the underlying value of those assets, that's going to invert maybe over time. And then the opposite could be said with with the green investments where you're getting a discount today in terms of the earning, but potential long-term mm-hmm. growth in the underlying asset, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just understanding that uh, there's so much nuance, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. And like even professional investors, they don't base an investment off what the return was yesterday and what it's compared to today. They have a whole process they go through to see, you know, is this um, in a declining industry? Is this in going to cause um, harm and have legal implications? Like there's a whole raft of things they look at. So why wouldn't personal investors look at, you know, a wider picture as well? Yeah. Okay. Mm. Nice one. Quite holistic. Yeah, I'm liking <laughs> it. Um, let's wrap up. I, I think that, um, you know, it's a complex area that's nuanced. It's, there are some new dynamics. So um, let's think about what kind of advice we would want to go forward. I mean, you're experts, right? Well, that's what we've sold you as. So, sold us oh, as yeah. Well. yeah. So let's hear from the experts. Do you have a, a, a bit of advice for people who are interested in the interface of climate change and investing? Maybe we start with you, Ron. Yeah, I think um, 
climate is something that we're all learning about. We're all learning by doing or not doing. Um, so taking an interest is important. Um, and then when you take an interest, as you say, you might choose to uh, to do things locally with your own purchasing decisions around, should I put a solar array on my, on my house or should I buy a greener product at the supermarket? You can choose your democratic vote in uh, just over a month's time in New Zealand, just under a month's time, um, to vote for a cause that for a party that has got uh, climate-friendly policies. Um, but you can also look at your money. And, um, you know, I think Mindful Money is a fantastic service. Um, they are a charity and you should donate money to them. So that's really, <laughs> that would be a really good idea. Tax deductible as well, I understand. Um, and uh, just uh, taking that interest where, you know, start with your KiwiSaver if, if, that's the, if that's the right place for you and ask those questions, you know, what am I comfortable with? What am I exposed to? And then what are my upsides? Mm. What we do in venture capital is obviously relatively specialist. Um, it's not for everybody, but uh, there are big opportunities there, and we'd certainly um, be happy to talk with people about it. Um, but it's not the it's not the mainstream, if you like. It's it's a relatively small subset of, of a bigger portfolio, yeah. um, and the whole of your portfolio is exposed to climate, either for positive or for negative. So you do need to think about it. Right. Be curious. Yeah. Take an interest. I mean, that's going to be a virtue of any personal investor, right? Be curious about mm. the world. Shannon, what's your advice? Um, probably my advice for more of the bigger picture and to KiwiSaver providers themselves is that people actually want to invest ethically. So Mindful Money does a survey every year and has a look at what the New Zealand public want. And we know that three quarters of New Zealanders want their um, investments to be managed ethically and three quarters of people don't want fossil fuels in their investments. So there's demand for it. And you only have to look at the amount of um, sustainable funds and um, impact investing funds mm -hmm. and impact investing Kiwi savers out there right now to know that it's a growing need and growing demand. And so I think um, it's always going to be there and it's going to get bigger. And then probably my advice for like personal investors themselves is don't leave it up to the fund providers or the financial industry or the politicians or the big corporates like you have such power in your voice and we're really lucky to live in a country where we have that and you can um, make change with your wallet and just by talking to people, talking to your fund provider, talking to, um, you know, companies that you might invest in is like the best thing you can do. Talk mm -hmm. to your peers, talk to everyone you know because, um, yeah, and, and look at things not only now but into the future. So mm -hmm. there's maybe like three or four pieces of advice. but <laughs> uh, uh, Find a voice. I think yeah, we, we can summarise <laughs> Darcy, you get the final word. Oh, thank you. So I would say there's risk. There's reward. So sometimes those are going to be held in tension. You need to find that right blend of risk and reward within all of your investing anyway. And this climate dimension is just another manifestation of that. So you kind of have to really think deeply about that, kind of like what, what you're saying, Shannon. It's not, and it's not like there's one answer here. It's going to be unique for everybody. So not being afraid to think extremist thoughts. You know, like, don't be an extremist. But, yeah, you can think extreme thoughts. And that's really important. Well, the contrarians that's exactly make money, right? That's exactly how, you, how you're going to do it, right? You're going to be holding these ideas and tensions. So it doesn't matter if you believe that climate change is real or that you can change the climate even by the way you invest because there's tons of money coming into it. Do you want a piece of that or not? Right. Right. So I think the other part is diversification between existing and and new or, or brown and green, like we've been kind of saying I, I kind of still would stay open around that because there's probably potential in some industries to realize this value that can be unlocked by going more green and you kind of want to benefit of that. Mm. So if you're, if you are looking for a return and you're doing good, sometimes they will be in tension and that's okay too. Um, green and brown, great fashion, right? <laughs> 70s. <laughs> 70s are back. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks, uh, Rowan, Shannon, Darcy, for joining this uh, conversation. It's uh, been really super informative. And thank you, 
uh, to our millions of viewers who have tuned in for yeah. this live webinar as part of the Auckland Climate Festival. So, uh, nā mihi nui. Uh, I hope you have a great afternoon and uh, enjoy the rest of this sunny day because I don't think this weather's going to last. Well, who knows? There's a changing climate. It'll get warmer. Yeah. It'll get warmer, that's for sure. Thanks and good afternoon. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. If you like the show, please rate us as it helps others to find us. Ka kiti anō.